In May of this year, hundreds of thousands of people mourned the death of internationally known Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. Uh, through his international speaking and writing ministry, he had helped numerous people come to faith in Christ and had helped uh, probably millions of people who are Christians to defend their faith in a meaningful way. Uh, throughout his ministry, he had always been touted of a man of great integrity, which was very refreshing in the, in the midst of very well-known Christian leaders who we've seen fall. However, shortly after his death, everything started to crumble apart. A few massage therapists came forward claiming that he had sexually abused them. At first, people were quick to come to Ravi's defense saying, no, 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 these people are just trying to make a mockery of this great man uh, after he's dead and he can't defend himself. They saw it as a cruel smearing of a godly man. But then more and more massage therapists came out claiming abuse and an internal investigation found that Zacharias had sexually abused hundreds of women and had misappropriated ministry funds to help fund his sexual escapades. People were crushed as a result of this knowledge. It was truly a sad moment for people who had looked up to him, not to mention all the pain inflicted on those women over the decades. Part of me wants to ask, how could somebody with such a powerful platform, how could someone who God had risen up, seemingly risen up to that position, abuse that power and end up causing so much pain? But there's another part of me that wasn't surprised at all because we've seen this happen with Christian leaders throughout history and especially in our culture today. We see it running rampant with Christian leaders who fall to scandal, whether it be sexually, financially, or simply because of an abuse of power. But we can't just ask the question, why are people capable of doing such a horrible thing? We have to look in the mirror and ask the question, Am I capable of doing something this horrible? Am I capable of doing something that could hurt my family, my church, my community, my neighbors, my workplace? And the answer is, of course we are. We are all capable of falling victim to sin. We all have fallen victim to sin, and we are capable of falling victim to deep levels of sin that can hurt people around us in dramatic ways. We've been in this series called Three Kings where we've been looking at the life of Israel's three kings when they were united, Saul, David, and next week will be Solomon. But this week we take a look at the dark side of David. Last week we took a look at David and the heroic young David, the man with the, uh, with the heart that's after God's own heart, as it says in Scripture. But this week we see that dark side. We see, the, I guess when this ugly sweater Sunday, we should call it the ugly side of David, right? Which, by the way, I know some of you who are Cleveland Indians fans, this Cubs sweater is especially ugly. I'm sorry, Guardians fans. Sorry, I got that wrong there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when we... When we talk about sex in church, when we talk about sexual failure, oftentimes churches are accused of talking about sex too much. And I couldn't disagree more with that. Um, I think that it's a great part of creation, our sexuality, that God has created. Uh, and we need to be careful to talk about it because it can be so quickly abused and cause so much damage. And so today I make no apologies for talking about what happened in David's life and the effects Thereof. So let, here's the story of David's downfall. I'm going to tell the story from 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, and then we'll look directly at Psalm 51 a bit later. But let's start with David's downfall. 
2 Samuel chapter 11 starts with this. It says, In the spring, when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, this is a key indicator here to us that David was doing something that was atypical for him, that was atypical for kings. This wasn't like today where the kings and the rulers of today's world direct their armies from the safeties of of their, their national capitals. This was something where David was expected to go out and to serve as a king and to lead the people in battle. But he didn't that year. And we don't know why, but there's a good chance here we understand that David lost his focus. David lost his focus of what he was supposed to be doing. I'd like to suggest two possible reasons why David lost his focus. The first is simply complacency, and the second, pride. Let's look at complacency first. Complacency will get us every time. Sometimes complacency leads us down a path that leads us to sin and temptation, and when we let our guards down, we're vulnerable to Satan's attacks. And this is especially true in today's world in America where we celebrate comfort, where we want to be comfortable. We want to live comfortably. And comfortable and complacent are really synonyms of each other. And when we let our guards down and when we seek that comfort, all of a sudden our prayer lives start to fall apart. All of a sudden we don't, we don't get in God's word the way that we should. All of a sudden we don't have that accountability that we need with other believers. And yet there's other times where it's not that complacency leads us to sin, it's that complacency in and of itself is the sin. Where simply Satan's temptation for us to be complacent and for us to get so comfortable is the sin itself, where we are now sinning as a result of, the Bible says that anyone who knows the good he ought to do and yet doesn't do it, sins. How are you doing with complacency in your life? Have you gotten complacent with what your eyes see, with what your ears hear, with what your heart is craving? If so, it's time to repent. It's time to bring that before God and to pray for a time of refreshing in your life. Well, after complacency, the other option here is that David was proud. It's quite possible that David thought more highly of himself than he should have. Rather than going off to war as kings did in these days, he thought, well, I'm beyond that. I'm the king of the most powerful land, the most powerful nation in this land. I don't have to do this anymore. I should be bigger than this. Andy Stanley has said, pride diminishes your capacity to say what you need to say, hear what you need to hear, and do what you need to do. And so David, he lost his focus, and that led to complacency or pride or maybe even both. And so he was up on the roof of his palace one night, looking over his kingdom, and next door there, there was a soldier named Uriah who lived next to him. And Uriah had an exceptionally attractive wife. And she was up bathing on the roof. And her name is Bathsheba, which is fitting because she was bathing on the roof. So it makes it very easy to remember her name, doesn't it? That was nice of them to do that, at least in English for us. But here she is. David calls some of his people and has them ask about who this woman is. Now, David, in those days, they practiced polygamy. They had more than one wife, which fortunately in our culture, we only do that on reality TV now. But here is David 
and he finds out that this is one of his soldiers' wives. And rather than saying, oh, I should leave her alone, this is a man who's fighting for me, he invites her to come up to his palace, to his room. Now, we often give Bathsheba a bad name in Christian circles. Let's be really honest. If the king in those days invites you, it's really not just an invitation, is it? It is more of a command than anything else. She wouldn't dare go against his wishes. And so there's a lot of slander often that happens towards Bathsheba. The reality, we don't know if she wanted this relationship with David or not. But we do recognize that this is clearly an abuse of power on David's behalf. David is abusing the power that he has, and he takes advantage of a woman by doing so. And so David went from being a peeping Tom up on the roof to being an adulterer. And so David, what we see next is that David put his desires over what was right and over the good of others. David wanted something. He saw something he wanted. And rather than recognizing this was not someone for him, he made an object out of Bathsheba because he simply wanted her because of her looks. And he got her. But this idea of putting your desires over what is right and what is good for others is rampant in America today. We talk about, it's all about being yourself. Well, I'm just being my true self if I do this. The problem is, of course, that our true self in, Bible, in the Bible is called sinful. That we have this sinful desires through our whole bodies. And so we have to watch our true selves, that we call it, to make sure that we're not being led astray. Because I don't know about you, well, I do know about you, but I know in my life that I have desires that are unhealthy, that are not good. And I can't just say, well, that's my true self. I'm going to go follow those desires. I have to say, no, that goes against God's will. That's not who I am as a son or daughter of the Lord Most High. I've been reading a book by a British bishop named Graham Tomlin. And the book is called, Why Being Yourself is a Bad Idea. It's an excellent book with a great title. And he shares the following quote from a couple of researchers. He says, Narcissism causes almost all of the things that Americans hope that self-esteem would prevent, including aggression, materialism, lack of caring for others, and shallow values. And trying to build a society that celebrates high self-esteem, self-expression, and loving yourself, Americans have inadvertently created more narcissists. And he goes on to conclude, what if the way to finding our true selves, paradoxically, is to let go of them first? What if your finding yourself is not by looking within, but by looking outside yourself? One modern translation of one of Jesus' sayings runs like this, self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. My way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and to lose you, the real you? So David put his desires over what was right and the good of others. The story continues with Bathsheba turning up pregnant. And so David then, he tries to cover up his sin, is what he does next. He calls Uriah, her husband, home, hoping that he will sleep with her as most men would do when they came home from battle. And yet Uriah is such a noble man in Scripture that it says that he refused to sleep with Bathsheba 
He refused to even go in his own home because he wanted to be out fighting the battles with his soldiers. He could not take the comforts of home because his soldiers were out fighting the battles. And so David tries to get uh, Uriah liquored up a little bit in hopes that that would win him over, in hopes that that would cause him to do it, but still nothing worked. So David sent Uriah out to battle. And he sent word to one of his commanders and said, I want you to put Uriah in the front lines. And I want you to charge the enemy. But then at a set time, I want everybody to fall back. But don't tell Uriah about this plan. Keep him out of the loop. And when that happens, then he will die. And so this is sure enough what happens. And after a time of mourning, David just simply takes Bathsheba as his own wife. And it's as she's about ready to give birth, as she gives birth here, that Nathan, the prophet, comes and gives this warning. But before we do that, we need to talk about David covering up his sin here. Because the reality is is that we all try to do this as well, don't we? Our pride tells us that we need to cover that up. We need to cover our bases to make sure that we aren't caught. To make sure that we maintain the appearance of looking better. To make sure that people don't see our sinful selves. Duncan Campbell said, Do not expect God to cover what you are not willing to uncover. And I think that's fitting. We read in Scripture that all of our deeds will be exposed someday. We see that happening where you cannot keep a secret in today's world about just about anything. And we must understand this, that trying to cover up our sin is the wrong response. That's a response out of shame. But when we uncover our sin before God, and when we confess our sins to others, the Bible says that we are healed when we confess our sins to others. When we have a friend or a family member, someone close to us, that we can say, hey, I need your help because I'm really struggling in this area. That is something that is good for us, noble for us, something that will help us to find healing in Jesus Christ. David tried to cover up his sin and it didn't work. So Nathan the prophet comes to him and he tells David this story about one guy having, uh, I guess in the VeggieTales version, he has one guy has several rubber duckies and the other guy only has one rubber ducky. But the guy with the several rubber duckies, he likes likes the one rubber ducky the other guy has, so he steals the one rubber ducky and puts it in a part of his collection. Do you remember that story at all from VeggieTales? Some of you? All right, yeah, some of you are like, what in the world's VeggieTales? It's crazy. There's like talking tomatoes and cucumbers and things and it's, it's, it's brilliant, brilliant. But really, it's the sheep that Nathan's talking about, the sheep that he uses in the Bible. And he's talking about David stealing Uriah's wife here, his one wife. And Nathan told David that as a result, he told him this, and David said, that guy should die for what he did. And then Nathan drops this line. He looks King David in the eye, and I don't know if he shouted it or if he whispered it, but it was heard by David. He said, David, you're that man. You're that man. To David's credit, David did not have Nathan knocked off or killed. But David responded with repentance. But before he repented, we need to also talk about the fact that David brought major consequences upon himself and his family. Nathan told David that there were going to be these consequences, that his son would die. That later on, that his, some of his own sons would try to overthrow his kingdom that the end of David's life would not be nearly as great as the first part because he had dishonored God in a very harmful way. 
So David brought major consequences upon himself and his family. And I wish I could tell you today that that just happens to David. It doesn't happen to you, but that would be a lie. The reality is, is that those consequences in our lives, they follow us. And I don't want you to not sin simply because you don't want to experience the consequences. I want you to not sin. I want you to lead a holy life because you love God with all your heart. Because you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I really want. But I also need to tell you that there are consequences for your sin. That even though God forgives us our sins when we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness is what 1 John 1.9 says. But you need to know that there are major consequences and it's so true, especially when you have kids and grandkids and you start seeing some of your sin affecting them, whether it be their self-image or their anger or their lifestyle. And that hurts, doesn't it? Because we want our kids to be a better version of ourselves in so many ways. We want our kids to walk with Christ in ways that we haven't, to take steps of faith that we might not be bold enough to take. We want our faith to grow in our kids and yet our sin can directly affect how they walk with God. Well, we've talked about David's downfall. We've talked about the pain of that. But I want to spend the rest of the time we have this morning talking about something that is equally important. That I could even argue is more important than talking about our own downfall. And that is God's grace. How did David turn to God after he'd been defeated by sin? Well, the first thing that we see is David called upon God's character for mercy. And for the rest of our time, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 here. David called upon God's character for mercy. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Notice David didn't say to him, have mercy on me, God, for I'm a really good moral human being. Have mercy on me, God, because I go to church every Sunday. Have mercy on me, God, because I take care of the poor. Have mercy on me, God, because I volunteer in children's ministry. <laughs> like, all those things are great in and of themselves. But at the end of the day, what we call upon God upon is His mercy because of His character, His unfailing love, His covenant love that it talks about there. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Carl Menninger, a non-Christian psychiatrist, has said, if I, convince, if I could convince my patients that they were truly forgiven, 75% of them would never see me again. Isn't that amazing? David called upon God for God's character for mercy. And he believed that God gave that mercy to him. We need to believe in that mercy as well. That it's not just something that we talk about in church, but it's a very true reality God forgives us of our sins. Do you believe this? After David called upon God's character for mercy, the second thing that we see him doing is that David acknowledged how his sin had offended God. Verses 3 and 4 say, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Well, Uriah might disagree with that statement, wouldn't he? David is using hyperbole here. Yes, of course he sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he sinned against Uriah. Of course he sinned against his family. But what he's using here is he's using this hyperbole to say, this is ultimately against you, God. I sinned against my creator. 
And you and I, as much as we can sin against our family, as much as we can sin against our spouse, as much as we can sin against people that are close to us, ultimately we must recognize that all sin violates our walk with God. David acknowledges how his sin had offended God. And you and I can come before God. He already knows, doesn't he? We can confess our sins to God. And he says, I've, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. In other words, God, you could send me to hell for every single sin. God, every single sin can separate me from you. And that would be a just thing for you to do. But yet in your mercy, oh God, you do not do that. After David acknowledged how his sin had offended God, David called upon God to cleanse him and restore him. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I'm not sure what hyssop is, but I think it's like lava soap. It's painful, but it does the job, right? Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Notice he didn't say, God, I'm going to take a bath and wash myself and I'll be white as snow after this is over. But he's calling upon God to do the cleansing. He's calling upon God because he knows that only God can cleanse him and only God can cleanse you and I as well. When we talk about being an only God can kind of church, oftentimes we talk about the things that God is doing in and through our lives. Let us never forget that only God can save us from our sins. Only God can cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So David called upon God to cleanse him and restore him. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. We're not talking about the snow that's alongside the roadside that once the snowplow goes by and kicks all the cinders and the sand up in it that's all dirty. That's not the type of snow we're talking about. We're talking about like the snow that's out in a distant meadow that nobody's ever trod through before. This isn't just an off-white color. This isn't beige. This isn't cleanse me and I will be beige as khakis. This is wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David is putting his ultimate hope in God's cleansing power, which is not to leave us a little bit sinful, but to cleanse us completely of our sin. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, not create in me good actions. Of course, actions are going to be a part of it. But David is saying, ultimately, I had a problem with my heart. This started when I looked at Bathsheba when she was naked and I kept looking at her and kept looking at her and kept looking at her and then went and did something so that I could get her. This was a heart problem first and foremost. And our sin is a heart problem as well. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is all about repentance. Repentance is not just saying we're sorry. Repentance is also a change of our lifestyle. Gordon MacDonald has said, repentance is not basically a religious word. It comes from a culture where people were essentially nomadic and lived in a world with no maps or street signs, or GPSs for that matter. It's easy to get lost walking through the desert. You become aware that the countryside is strange. You finally say to yourself, I'm going in the wrong direction. That's the first act of repentance. The second act of repentance is to go in an alternate direction. It implies that you not only do this, but you admit it to your companions. We all do this whether or not we realize it. 
Even dad at some point when going on the, Christmas, on the family vacations each summer has to admit when you're lost, right? At some point you have to turn around. And in the same way, when we recognize that we have sinned, repentance is essential, not just confessing that we've done something wrong, but saying I'm making a U-turn in my life. I'm going the other direction. David called upon God to cleanse him and restore him. And finally, we see that David committed himself to sharing God's goodness with others. Scripture says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. What he's saying here is that I want to be your messenger. I want to be the messenger of your forgiveness. I want to be the messenger of your grace. And the good news is, is that God has saved all of us from sin, hasn't he? And we aren't messengers of being really good people. We're messengers of being people who were utterly messed up and sinful, yet who were saved by God and who are now being transformed by Him. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, who, you who are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David commit himself to sharing God's goodness with others. Will you share the goodness of God's mercy and grace with others as well? Well, where does that leave us this morning? My guess is, is that you walked in here this morning in one of two camps. The first is that some of you, some of us, are way too lax with sin. We have just gotten accustomed to sin in our lives. Maybe it's not that big of a sin in our minds. And we've just become so lax and complacent. And for you, for us that are in this category, we need to repent. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to pray to God. And we need to change our lives around. And with an area that we've been holding on to for too long. But the second is on the other end of the spectrum. And this is one who has asked God for forgiveness, but it has struggling to believe it. You've changed your life around, but you carried around so much guilt that you never actually believe you're forgiven. And this can lead us to a legalistic lifestyle where we're always trying to earn our salvation rather than believing that our salvation is firm and secure in Christ and in Christ alone. And if you're in this camp, I want to remind you to trust in the goodness of God just as David did. Your salvation is not in your works, it's not in your deeds, but it is in the goodness of God. May I remind you of this, that in our culture that seems to cancel everybody who offends someone in some way, shape, or form, that God does not cancel us. He cancels our sin, but He does not cancel you. And so as we conclude today, I want to pray for you, and I want to pray that God would speak to you in one of those two ways, that if God needs to convict you of sin, that you indeed would know that, that you would hear that, and that you would find His grace. But if you need to be reminded of His forgiveness and His healing power, that God would do that as well. Would you please bow with me and pray? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Lord, we just, we just think about that prayer of David. We think about your unfailing love for us, Lord, that even though we've sinned against you, even though we've offended you time and time again, that you refuse to let us stay there. But in your great mercy, you actually came down into this world, that you stepped into this earth, 
and that you offered us the forgiveness and the grace that we so deeply need. Lord, we pray for your strength to overcome sin. So, Lord, we pray that if we need to be convicted of sin, that you would do so in our lives this morning. If there's something that we've been holding on to, Lord, that you would help us to let go of that sin, to allow you to take that sin off of our shoulders and to put them on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who are struggling to believe that we're forgiven, for those of us who are struggling with guilt, we pray that reminder would be upon us that you have forgiven us, that you have cleansed us from all sin, and that we can trust in you. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.